0: Good morning, TFC. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. Once again, no matter how long you've been a Christian or in church, how little or how much, uh, the only goal here is that the word of God would change us into Christ's likeness for our joy, for his glory, and so I plead with you not to sit there without your Bible open. Uh, The revelation of the scriptures, not my eloquence, not my presentation, not my points on the screens, but the word exposed and illuminated by the Holy Spirit is what will bring life to us. So if we're gonna not follow along reading the text, we will experience little to no growth. Uh, My words hold no power. I'm simply saying what God says after Him, uh, trying my best to explain the Scriptures worshipfully, which is simply what preaching is—explaining the Scriptures worshipfully. And uh, this is also means that in your own time, outside of Sunday mornings, as that you would, as we make our way slowly through the Book of Luke in worship, corporate worship, that you would be reading and learning other books of the Bible and passages and texts and scriptures on your own. And if you're not doing that, then you can't treasure Jesus and you can't grow. And so my goal is that, my hope is that you would be doing that in your own time as well. The Christian life will be stagnant without the word of God. And you'll be trying to maybe even blame it or, or figure out why uh, on other things. But the really, the at the core root of it, is that we are void of the word of God if we're not reading it, hearing it, looking at it, and being shaped by it and that's what will give life and and if it's void of that, if our lives are void of that, uh, there will be little to no growth. Uh, On the other hand, if you build the habit it will become normal for you to look at the word of God to see it, to understand it, to look at it deeply, to wake up early just like uh, uh, a time in which you enjoy and love to meet with the Lord it will become normal. Think about maybe even building a habit of waking up early or, or working out. At, at the beginning, it seems very difficult to build that habit. It feels uncomfortable. But at, over the course of some time, it, it feels very comfortable. It feels normal. It's, be, it's become a habit. And, and so it will become more comfortable in a good way once you begin to read regularly. But we need his word. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God all of it breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work theonustos meaning a theo god nustos breathe that's where we get the word nostrils from every word god breathed. And so this this is very very important for us. Every word of this is breathed out by God, which is why we look at these texts so very carefully. Of Romans 10:14 through 15, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How they how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The, the good news, hearing the word of God is where faith will come and, and his gospel, hearing his gospel is how faith comes. And so we need his word. And, and just another encouragement, Psalm one nineteen nine nine through 16, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes upon your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. More than anything, we need the Bible. We need God's word by his spirit to do the work in our lives that only it can do. And that's why we need today to look at it. Um, We need to be resolved to look at the scriptures. Uh, there's. I think it's been far too long. One of the reasons I'm so resolved is because far too long, Christians have been void of learning it. I, I hear all the time, I've been in church so long and I've heard a lot of practical application for my life, but no one's ever taught me the Bible. So we venture to only go where the text takes us. Uh, I don't want to go beyond that, but deeper into that. Sometimes that'll lead us into more practical things like today, uh, but I don't want to go anywhere the text doesn't go. So, so that's where uh, we go all the time. We stop where it stops and we go where it goes, and that's what we follow very, very simply. So today, from God's Word, we're going to be talking about greatness. Once again, we're going to be talking, continuing to talk about, for the second week, about what it means to be great. Great. And once again, this is not just any description of greatness. This is God's definition of greatness. From what we would naturally and culturally define as great, Jesus in this passage, as we saw last week, and we're going to be reviewing a lot today and seeing uh, just a little bit more, Jesus is redefining greatness. He's redefining greatness for his disciples. This is the kingdom definition of what it means to be great. Great. You see, Jesus is teaching this to them and to, and to us, the disciples, what it means to be great in God's eyes, the pursuit of greatness uh, in, in God's eyes. The pursuit of greatness, uh, it, it's its different than what we would pursue. And, and God is calling them to an understanding of what it means to be great in, in his eyes. You see, the pursuit of greatness in our culture, the pursuit of greatness in the eyes of the world, it's it's a prominent uh, pursuit for all of us. Uh, the pursuit, we spend for it, we we strive for it, we wake up for it, we go to bed thinking about it. Maybe not explicitly, but in all reality, that's our culture's goal, that we would attain greatness at some level, or that others would see us as great. And if we attain greatness at some level, then we've we, we've made it however we define greatness. If we attain it, we, we've made it. Our whole lives can revolve around it, especially in the American culture. And even in The American church, greatness, Uh, believers and leaders. We can see this as the ultimate goal. Think about the American dream or the ultimate idea of fame in America. Uh, Fame is when you've really made it. The goal is that we would pursue greatness and our whole lives would revolve around it, even if we don't say it out loud or say it explicitly. Greatness, it revolves around self-promotion, cultural approval, self glory. Our days are, are made up uh, of pursuing what's popular or what will be recognized. And when we make it, we feel like we've done better than others. Our salary reaches a certain point. We've gotten a bunch of likes on our posts. Uh, euphoria, jubilation happens. And, uh, and and when we've arrived at some senior expert maybe in a, some field of work or or we've become uh, superior to others in some ways. And, And some of these pursuits are not inherently bad, but it's bad when we begin to find our identity in it. It's bad when, when we begin to define it as great. It becomes a source of pride. It, it, it's, it's sinful once it brings about comparison and arrogance and it undermines, as it always does, the very reason for which we were created, which is to bring glory to God. The pursuit of greatness in this way that the world attempts to, to pursue it, brings glory to self, which is the very opposite reason for which we were created. And, and what if that type of greatness that we're pursuing, although affirmed by the world, isn't what makes us great in God's eyes? What if it's different? What if God defines greatness differently? He, what if he doesn't include the house, the salary, the job? What if he doesn't include those things as, as great? In fact, what if it's actually counter to what God would determine as great? What if it's actually the opposite? What if it actually undermines? What if those pursuits actually undermine what God determines as great? The question is, would we be willing, are we willing to pursue, to trust his path, his promises by faith, trust in his word by faith, trust in his definition of greatness by faith and pursue it? as our life's goal, even if it means releasing our status before men in order to obtain what is greatness in God's eyes? Would we be willing to forsake our pursuits and to pursue what God determines as great? I want a church full of those types of people who are willing to release, even if at at great cost to one's own reputation, to release, the idea of of greatness in the eyes of the world and to pursue trusting God by faith in his word and promises, following his definition of greatness because it brings him glory, because it's for our good and because it will benefit others. I want a church full of those people. As we mentioned last week, which... By the way, today will be a lot of review, which is, is good because we need this so often. We're not going to come back to this concept for a little while. I think our culture needs it. So we just have a little bit to add today, which we will at the, at the end. But a lot of this will be review, which I think God designed for us this week. Um, but as we mentioned last week, the world's definition of greatness always involves Comparison and I added something and it involves compliment. The world's definition of greatness always involves comparison and it always involves compliment. I added compliment because even if it's not an explicit compliment, the world's definition of greatness requires recognition by others. And so it involves compliment and then it involves also comparison. We attain certain status of greatness in light of others, compared to others. In the eyes of others, and so this is not involved in Jesus's definition of greatness. The also, the other problem with the world's definition, as we mentioned, is that it values things that Jesus doesn't value. When we define greatness like the world does, there are values encompassed that Jesus does not encompass in his definition of greatness. It defines greatness in terms of in terms of things that Jesus doesn't. It encompasses values that are not on Jesus's list. Actually, usually, again, these are contradictory. Even as Christians, we live with certain values that have been given to us by the world in order to have Jesus, but also be seen as great in this life. And we almost ignore the true value system that Jesus portrays. At the essence, at its core, all of this pursuit of greatness and the way that the world defines it is as Jesus will show us today, pride. That's the spiritual language for this. That's the biblical language for this. It's pride. This is pride. And Jesus is is helping his disciples to be humble, to let go of their pride, to pursue greatness in his eyes, which is trusting him and his word by faith and lovingly serving others, laying down one's life and being in the kingdom of God. That's what will be great. And so this is pride. This is we su- we it's so easy for us. We surrender to what comes natural. We feel this is essential, we need and we want glory. We we want to be seen as great. This is pride. The reason for the fall of Satan, the reason for the fall of mankind, the reason for the Pharisees rejecting Jesus as the Christ, they wanted glory, all of them. And This glory rightly belongs to God. It's not new. This idea of pride is not new. We've just fallen in line with the rest of mankind. It exposes our depravity. And even as Christians, this sin of pride still dwells so deeply in us. Paul says in Romans 7, he calls it the sin that dwells within him. And this is pride for us. It dwells within us. In addition to being outside of God's design for greatness, it actually causes destruction, pride. It causes great destruction. And we've seen that over throughout the scriptures. It causes fights in the church. It causes criticisms of others. It causes disunity. It ruins relationships. It ruins marriages. It ruins children. It makes life about us. It prevents us from rejoicing with others. It causes bitterness. It stunts Spiritual growth, it prevents us from being edified by the word as opposed to receiving the word like little children. It keeps us from showing God as the supreme treasure of the universe instead of making ourselves that. And, and so this pride, it destroys everything. And what God wants to do today is call us to true greatness. To true greatness, which is defined by humility. It's defined by loving, sa- lovingly sacrificing ourselves for others, it's defined by giving glory to God. It's defined by us being unified for His cause. And it's defined by receiving Him. He's calling us to true greatness, the greatness defined by trusting in His words and lovingly sacrificing for the good of others. And so we can summarize it by this God defines greatness as humility and as citizenship in the kingdom. He defines it by humility. This is greatness in God's eyes. Humility, lovingly sacrificing for the good of others, laying one's life down. And because to live like this would be trusting his word by faith, you don't live like this unless you trust in him, then Greatness is also a a trusting in him, a believing him, a receiving of him and, and his father, as we saw last week, and then entrance into his kingdom, therefore. And so we can define greatness as humility, but even more so citizenship in the kingdom. That's what Jesus defines as great. And we won't be humble unless we've received his kingdom because his value system then becomes our value system. Humility is the basis for all salvation. As we realize that we have nothing, we have nothing to give, we need Christ's work, we are nothing, we come to him like an infant who is simply carried into the arms of a parent. And humility is not only the basis for salvation, but it's the basis for all Christian growth. As it receives God's words by faith, as a very young child even receives the words of a parent, not thinking he or she knows better, but receiving words as truth. The humility is the evidence that we are in the kingdom of God, the essential fruit that proves that we've received the Lord, that we're living like him, we're trusting in his words, we have trusted in his words, we've got let go of ourselves, we're trusting in him, and if we're in his kingdom in that way, then what we have done is been saved. So the Lord aims to redefine greatness for us today. This is what he aims to do. As a humble and sacrificial, loving Christian, that we would pursue this by faith, because this is what the Lord calls us to, and that's what He displays to us upon the cross for His example, as well as because if we live in this way, it will be have it will be evidence that we've received the Father, we've received Christ, and therefore we are citizens in the kingdom, and and that makes us great. And so the question is again: Will you pursue greatness as the world defines? Greatness, or by faith will you pursue greatness in God's eyes, in God's definition? That's what we're after today. And again, we're going to see how this is connected to God's greater story, to Jesus' messianic ministry, and to what he calls of all the apostles or disciples that are with him. Uh, Again, this is not just an an application for us. This is connected to his greater story and what he's doing, particularly in this moment in Luke. It's connected to Jesus's messianic ministry, part of his goal of while he was on earth. And it's connected to what he's calling of his apostles and disciples and what he's calling of us. And so we're gonna see that connection. Let's pray, let's ask God to change us, to, to redefine greatness for us that we would pursue it by faith and uh, and do so for all of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we come and we ask you, God, please, we pray that you would help us today to redefine greatness, to pursue humility, to love you with all of our hearts, to trust in you, and therefore to be changed by you, to pursue what you determine as greatness, to pursue what you determine and you define as as truly great in your eyes, which is to know you, to be in your kingdom, and to lovingly sacrifice for others. I pray, God, that we would pursue this greatness by faith as you show us your rebuke of the disciples, that we would learn from it as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we can read Luke chapter nine, verses 46 through 50. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the great or the least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, I want to remind us of another week uh, for another week as we've just read the passage that we're going to look at and and recap in just a moment. I want to remind us for another week where we are in God's greater narrative, God's greater story since creation. Because this is tied directly to where Jesus is in the point of his ministry and what God's story is from the beginning of creation to the end of time. Therefore, Where we are in Luke's account in this greater story, namely is the period of the Messiah coming to earth. So God predicted and foretold that his Messiah would come to save his people. And and now we're here and Jesus is on the earth, the Christ, he's proving that he's the Christ and he's gonna die for the sins of mankind. This is before the church will advance after his ascension. And more specifically in these verses, 46 through 50 in chapter 9, although short and familiar, it's it's a very significant section. It's a very significant turn, turning point. Because again, as we mentioned last week, these will be the two last events uh, that we will see in his ministry in Galilee. That's what Luke tells us. Uh, John, uh, Jesus started his ministry at the time of John the Baptist, being baptized in the Jordan River, He then goes south and spends some time in Judea. He then heads to Galilee. And that's where we've been for a while. He, he's been in Galilee. He spent a year and a half or so in Galilee. And think of all that's happened in Galilee and his ministry there. As we've talked about, even the establishment of permanent patterns like, like his messengers sending and spreading his message to his people, um, being agents to reach the lost. We've been shaped by this ministry in Galilee and these are permanent patterns that have been established. It's amazing. But what we'll see in verse 51 as we mentioned last week is that Jesus is going to turn his face to go to Jerusalem. Let's read that. Verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, this is Jesus's and the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And so this is where Jesus will turn and set his face to go to Jerusalem, where he will die and pay for the sins of of mankind. So verse 50 again in Luke's gospel is the very end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. So it should give us a lot of clarity about the timeline, about the structure. And again, it should be incredibly interesting because we had the birth narratives, the childhood narratives, the testimonies of his messiahship. We had the baptism, the testimony of, of his messiahship. We had the commencement in that baptism of his, of his earthly ministry. And that was all at the age of 30 um, And so therefore, up until that point of of Jesus's uh, commencement of ministry, the, the proof as a child was to prove that he was indeed the Messiah, God's Christ. And then, and even in his ministry in his early time, that's what he aims to show, that he's the Messiah, he's the Christ. So Jesus at that point in his baptism goes south and spends some time in Judea, and then he heads north to Galilee. And he spends a year and a half or so ministering in this region of Galilee. And all of this time was spent establishing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. That's what we see really from the beginning of Luke all the way until halfway through chapter nine in verses 18 through 22. This is the point, is that Jesus is showing himself to be God's Christ, the anointed one, the coming uh, uh Messiah, the coming king, God's anointed king, establishing that he's the chosen one, God's Christ, and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies to reconcile man to God. And so that's what we see in the very beginning of his ministry, as we've mentioned. In verse 18 through 22, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And that's really a turning point for us as well, that Peter is confessing with us that we should confess and, and everyone at that point should confess because he's shown evidence that he's the Christ. After that confession, after this confession, listen, the establishment of his messiahship has been settled. He is now telling them that he must die. He must go to the cross. This is what the Messiah must suffer. This is what he must suffer, death, death. And this is what his apostles will have to follow. Matthew says it well, as we looked at last week, verse 21 of chapter 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders, from the chief priests, from the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So again, the progression, birth, Childhood testimonies, ministry testimony, it being settled among the apostles. He's the Christ. Then him spending time telling of his coming suffering and rejection. Very logical ordering, right? And so verse 51, as he sets his face to Jerusalem, this will begin the journey now to going to his death. Once in Jerusalem, that will be the next progression of him dying and, and fulfilling his, his task for the Father. So now in verse 51... As they begin the journey to Jerusalem, and as this journey to Jerusalem, as we mentioned, lasts to chapter nineteen, verse forty-four, this journey will be wonderful. It'll be it'll be it will be so strong for us to look at because what's going to happen on this journey of his process of ministry and and heading to Jerusalem will be teaching the apostles to follow him. It's going to be teaching his disciples to live by faith according to his word they have just failed at trusting in his word when they weren't able to cast out the demons but now they will need to uh see and this gives reason for jesus explicitly stating once again that they must live by faith according to his word so more practically on this journey it's going to be a time of training the 12 right a time of 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 jesus training explicitly with the 12 to follow him. Um, It's gonna be a time where the disciples are gonna go to school with Jesus and we're gonna go to school with them. And Jesus is gonna be their teacher and our teacher and they're gonna be discipled and we're gonna be discipled by Christ. This season during this journey after the Galilean ministry will be extreme practical teaching for us. Training up his disciples, training us up as well and improving who he is, telling of his coming suffering And then teaching them to follow him before he suffers. We're going to learn along this journey. And so that's the progression. And now we're heading to Jerusalem just shortly. But before we do, Jesus must lay a foundation for his disciples. He's already laid that they must live according to his word. And now he's going to lay down that it must be characterized by a humility, a trusting in him and a loving of others and a believing that entrance into his kingdom is what's the greatest. So Jesus has already taught them so much and he's gonna continue on this journey to Jerusalem, but, but he's beginning now. And he's teaching his disciples here about humility, which is true greatness. Receiving his words as an overflow of receiving him. We talked that the passage will lead us to individual humility in verses 46 through 48 and group humility in verses 49 through 50, which is what we'll look at today. This talks about individual humility in our hearts, understanding what the Lord really sees as great, and then group humility, collectively being humble and receiving others. Now, last week we covered verses 46 through 48, and we saw three points, and I wanna mention those in a moment. But first I wanna re-mention the humility primers that I gave prior to explaining the text as we don't have very much to cover today, today serves as a bit, again, of an an overview purposefully because I just think we need it desperately in light of our culture that we live in and in light of the fact that we won't address this again for a while. So the Lord here, as he works his humility and the Lord knows we need it. um, He knows that what we need most in our lives is humility to get rid of ourselves. That's the foundation of our faith not living for ourselves, but living for him. We need humility. Um, We mentioned three antidotes to pride. And what we said was, number one, look more repeatedly at God. If we want to fight pride in our lives, we must look more repeatedly at God. The revelation of who God is should make us understand what real greatness is and who we truly are. And this pattern is found in Isaiah 6, as we've mentioned, and is also found in the gospel. Right, We see God, we see ourselves rightly. He comes and he cleanses us. Then we want his words and to obey him and we respond in faith. The gospel is the same thing. We see God's holiness. We see our sinfulness. We see Christ's cleansing. Then we want to follow him. We hear his words and we respond by repentance and, and faith. And so we the first step is always leading uh, from, uh, the first step is always to see God and all the other steps always come from from that place. We wanna see God and who he is and God will change us therefore after that. Secondly, we said that to fight pride in our lives, we must also gain a very deep awareness of our inability to contribute to our own salvation think about this. Uh, God removed the blinders that we would even see his holiness, see our pride, see our sin, see our desperation, see our need for a savior. And then he also did the work to pay that price. And so when we consider this inability to contribute at all to our own salvation, and yet Christ has died for us and most, and us who are in the body of Christ have contributed nothing to our salvation, we become humble people. There's no reason for us to boast. And lastly, we said that in order to fight pride in our lives, we must ask the Lord to bring humility through experience. Even though the Lord's commands uh, of humility are are wonderful and they're the basis for what we need to understand this truth, uh, humility is a fruit that also comes by fire. Humility is very, very rewarding, but it's very, very painful. It goes against everything that comes natural to our flesh. So as the Lord takes us deeper into the reality of humility beneath its, its reality and the importance of what we find on the surface and we find the roots of, of why re, uh, humility matters, um, we see that the Lord must do this great work not only through his word, but also through testing and fire. And so as we looked at the, the text, we witnessed three aspects that gave us greater clarity. We witnessed the argument in verse 46, the argument. Let's read this as we we look at the text. We're gonna just add one point at the end today. Verse 46, we witnessed the argument. Let's read it. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. And so I won't give you the scene again. You can listen to last week's message to get it, which again, I encourage you to do. But we see after he just got done telling them that following him will require death to self, right? Paradoxically, after they just failed in trusting in his words to cast out a demon, they just failed. And now here they are pride which is crazy because think about this typically this is true of God's followers how quickly we forget our successes and how quickly we even forget our failures God shows us th- uh, he, even in our lives he shows us his mighty hand and and then just a few moments later we've failed to trust him right or even more so God shows us just how how uh, little our faith is we fail in our faith. And then God humbles us greatly through that. But then the next moment we're pr- puffed up in, in pride. We just, we just don't see it rightly. And they just failed miserably in failing to trust his words. And now here, just a few moments later, they're asking who is the greatest. And this is pride. It's the wrong definition of greatness. It's causing disunity and they've made their following of Jesus about them. We've seen the argument. Secondly, what we see in the passage, what we've seen is the assessment. Let's read this. Uh, verse 47 says, but Jesus knowing their, the reasoning of their hearts. And so Jesus looks at their argument as they share it with him and they, he assesses that this is pride. It's not the way of greatness. It's not about him. It's not about others. It's not about the kingdom. It's not about advancing the kingdom through loving and evangelism and discipleship. It's not about even, it's not driven by faith. Which, by the way, the reason why probably these past two sermons today and last week feel like rebukes, it's because this is what the text is. This is a rebuke, right? We always pursue the tone and the content of the text or else I don't really know how to teach. The text indicates everything. But this is a rebuke. He assesses their hearts and he says, this doesn't line up with my definition. And therefore, it's a rebuke. So we saw the argument. We saw the assessment And then we saw the adjustment. Adjustment meaning Jesus is adjusting their perspective, their hearts, their definition of greatness. He wants to reorient them with his will and his ways. And so he picks up a child. Let's read it verse 47b through 48. Jesus, he took a child and he put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you is the one who is great. A child representing the need, representing especially among this culture, representing what's considered lowly. This represents the essence of sacrificial love. Jesus is saying, you've got it all wrong, disciples. Apostles, you've got it wrong. Your definition of greatness, it doesn't line up. If you love the neediest and the lowly, then you are great. It's a display of sacrificial love. If you love others, if you sacrifice yourself, that's greatness in my eyes. And the other accounts, he says, becoming like even a child, receiving them and then becoming like one is what is defined as, as greatness. Matthew chapter 18, the other account says this, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God God like a child shall not enter it. And so Jesus is not only saying that we would receive these children who are needy and and sacrificial love is, is the picture there, not just for children, for all people. He's also saying that we must become like children. And receive the kingdom or else we will not enter it. And so this is greatness. When we receive the kingdom like this, when we sacrifice ourselves like this, we believe the gospel, his truth, trusting in his words and his ways, rather than inserting ourselves or our own objections. In this way, we have become great. That's greatness. Greatness. Luke 10, 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father and Lord in heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, and this is not uh, literally little children. He's using a, a word picture there. Ones who trust his word by faith and believe in him. Father, for such was your gracious will. These are the people who are great, the ones who have trusted him by faith, trusted in his word who have received the lowly, who have, have sacrificial love and who become like children themselves, believing in him. The idea here is not for children in particular, but those who have become like children, received him like children and who have received others with sacrificial love. If we incorporate Mark and Matthew in this, we can see that Jesus is making two things clear, sacrificial love and humility and faith in him. That's greatness. Sacrificial love and humility and a receiving of him and his words, that's greatness. That's greatness. And what's wonderful here is as we look at verse 48 and he says, whoever does this, whoever receives this child in my name, whoever receives this child this this child this way and, and does it for me, he receives me. It's not because humility earns some level of greatness, that would still be an earning for us, a source of pride. We are humble enough, so therefore we're great. He's saying, if you've done that, you've received me. Meaning you don't live like that unless you believe in him. It's like the Old Testament. It was operated by faith, even if you could think that it was operating by a law, because you don't sacrifice your animal unless you believe God is real. It's by faith that they acted in the Old Testament. And even so here, if you love like this, sacrificing yourself in humility for the sake of other people, it is clear that you trust in Jesus and his words. You believe him by faith. You, you trust his upside down way to the world. And if you've received him, then you've received the father. And if you've received the father, you're in the kingdom of God. And therefore the one who is lowly is the one who is great because you've shown sacrificial love and you're in the kingdom of God. This is greatness. So the, the goal here is that you would view greatness like this. All of this review is for the purpose of you viewing greatness like this and trusting it enough by faith to pursue it. Will you still need instant gratification and therefore live for the world's greatness? Or will you anticipate your reward in heaven one day and therefore trust his words? Pursue greatness in his eyes. That if you're in the kingdom, you're great. You don't have to be the greatest, you're great. And will you pursue sacrificial love because that's what, Jesus displays to us, even on the cross. So today we're just gonna add one simple thing and, and we're gonna add a fourth point here to this story as the brief account comes to a close. We've seen the argument, we've seen the assessment, we've seen the adjustment, and today we're gonna to see the assertion, the assertion. And what I mean by this is that John is gonna assert something here and then Jesus is going to assert something here. And this is gonna bring all of this to a close and, and really kind of bring it to a head. And so we see that Jesus and John are both going to assert something very strongly here. And this is going to give us really the extent of how much Jesus means what he's saying. Verse 49 through 50 says this. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, again, as I mentioned, this is group pride. And the first thing we're gonna see this is, is John's assertion. John is asserting something here. What is he asserting? Well, let's look at this. Because we know that this is connected to the previous verses. How do we know that this is connected? Well, it says John answered. So the passage that we just read last week isn't over. Right. John answered something in the same scene. Therefore, something is, is there's more to be studied here. There's more to be seen about this scenario. John answered something. Why is he even answering? We would expect the only answer to come at this point. Yes, Lord, whatever you say. Right. This is greatness and we'll follow it and we'll take your definition of it. And we're sorry for our pride. But John here, he answers something. And what does he answer? He says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Now, what's he saying here? As Jesus has just said, don't argue amongst yourself amongst yourself about who's great. As he just said, the one who becomes like a child or receives a child is the one who is really great because you're in the kingdom. And humility and sacrificial love is my definition of greatness. John answers and tells of a time that he stopped a man from casting out demons in Jesus's name because they did not, this man did not follow with him. Now, what is happening here could possibly be out of conviction, right? That could be one possibility. John, who was just rebuked by Jesus, says, Jesus, listen, I just gotta confess to you, because of what you just told us, that we failed in this. There was a man who was casting out demons in, in your name and, and he was claiming your name and, and we told him to stop because he wasn't with us. We were prideful and thinking we were greater. We we're convicted of that. I just want to confess that. The admittance and middle of being convicted by what Jesus says. So he could be confessing, that's possible. But I think here, this is an assertion more than anything else. I think the pride is really, really coming to a head here. We're seeing the pride to a greater extent. He says this, Master, this is probably a memory, by the way, of when they were sent out, the 12 and and there was a man who was trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And John is saying here, "Yes, Lord, the least is the one who's the greatest in the kingdom, But surely there are limits to that. That's what he's asserting here. surely there there's limits to whose great and who's not and who's equal and who's not because listen I I do want to tell you but when we were out there was a man trying to cast out demons in your name but we told him to stop because he wasn't with us and so therefore even if we aren't greater than each other surely we as a collective group as the disciples are greater than those who don't follow with us right? There was a man who was trying to cast out demons, but he wasn't with us, and therefore we tried to stop him. Surely we have, as a collective group of 12 disciples, are at least greater than other people are trying to, to do this, aren't we? Right? He's trying to assert that there's some still some greatness about them. It's like a, if, if you're with your child in your house, and, and your child is being, the, the children are being unkind to each other in the house, which I know never happens, right? The children are being a, a, unkind to each other in your house. And you're saying, listen, we treat each other with kindness. And then your child responds, yes, dad, but there was this boy in the neighborhood and he, he wasn't acting right and we were unkind to him. Like surely there, to some extent, we, we don't need to be kind to everybody. There are some people who don't deserve kindness. And then I look at the child and say, no, 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 we're kind to everybody. What's happening here is is he's saying, surely we're still the greater ones, right? I mean, I know what you just said. We shouldn't argue amongst each other, but there was this man who was trying to claim your name and we stopped him because he wasn't with us. Surely there's some level of greatness that we have, right? John says this man, he probably saw while he was on the road, said, I saw this man and he wasn't with us. And so evidently, Jesus allowed this man to do the casting out of the demons. He allowed him to cast out demons because it didn't say he was trying to cast out demons. Verse 49, he was casting out demons in Jesus' name. So Jesus, in verse 49, evidently we, we see that Jesus allowed this man to do it. He was casting out demons and they tried to stop him. The very reason was because they he wasn't with them. Implying, if we're not greater than each other, still technically we're greater than them, right? And this is unique in the sense that the other man, whether he believed or not at this point, because Jesus says this man probably, we know that Jesus says this man will believe because in John, uh, I think Mark 9, 38 through 41, sorry, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. This is the same account. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for the one who does a mighty work in my name will will be... uh, For the one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil. For no one who does a mighty work in my name, I'm sorry, will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. So this man, if he does a mighty work in Jesus's name, will soon believe in Jesus. For the one who is greatest, uh, who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because of you belonging to Christ, he will be, by no means lose his reward. So Jesus is saying this man is going to believe inevitably because of the mighty works he's trying to do in my name. And so he's not maybe a believer at the point in which he tries the miracle, but he's attempting, at least it seems genuinely to, to, to learn about, to follow Jesus. So maybe we can see him as a, as, as a novice here, following Jesus's example and his disciples example. Some say John rebuked this person because this person was maybe trying to cast out demons and do the works of Jesus, but not actually follow Jesus. That doesn't seem to be supported here. What seems to be happening once again is that John is asserting that we are technically greater than this man because he's not part of our group. And I think that this can be applied to us in regards to group pride in the church. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. We're we are going to treat each other with sacrificial love. And we're going to consider greatness to be the ones who are in the kingdom. There's no clicks here, especially with seasoned believers and non-believers who are genuinely trying to learn especially with seasoned believers and and young believers. There's no cliquish pride here. And John tries to assert this point, but we see Jesus asserts right back. So we saw John's assertion and now we close with Jesus's assertion. What he says in verse 50 is this, but Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, what we see here is the word but first. So Jesus is speaking to the contrary of what John is saying. And Jesus said to John, but uh, 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 it says, but Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. And so to the contrary, Jesus is saying to John, listen, there is no neutral ground here. Jesus is saying the same thing In reverse, in Luke chapter 11, verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here he's saying the reverse. He's saying, if this man is not against us, than he is for us. And so this man who is simply trying to follow me genuinely, who's seen this example, who's, who's attempting to do what you guys are doing, don't cause disunity because of your pride. There's no need to argue who is the greatest. There's no need to argue who is greater. John, let me assert one more time. Do not cause disunity here. Do not think that you are greater. Do not try to to assert yourself as greater because the one who is not against us is for us. Now this goes right in line in what we see in Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus says this, he says at the or the, uh, Matthew says this at the time of the disciples. Came, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, "Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?" Calling to him, this is the same scene. A child. He put him in the midst of them and said, "Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven." So we've seen that. But then he says this, which seems almost out of place: "Whoever receives one such child in my name." receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That last part seems out of place unless we understand it in light of what we just understood in Luke, which is if any one of these little children who are following me is caused to stumble, is caused to to look at Uh, things differently and to be hurt because someone is treating them as if they are not great, right? Treating them with pride, uh, like John is trying to treat this man who's trying to cast out demons and causes him even uh, by, by way of implicitly causing division or being proud or looking at or flaunting their own greatness in comparison to him, right? It's better for that that person to be have a millstone tied around their neck and be thrown into the sea. What Jesus is essentially saying here is that there is no reason to cause division amongst those who are trying to follow me. So the Lord is calling them to group humility. He's calling them in this whole scene to individual humility and then group humility. It doesn't mean that they're gonna allow the mingling of false teaching that they will encounter doesn't mean that they're going to be uh, submitting themselves to people who don't believe in God's word. But yet what Jesus is saying here is there should be no divisions among you due to pride. And so once again here, what we see is that Jesus is asserting. He's saying, no, John, there's no reason for you to view yourself as greater. Even if he's not with us. Instead, we should love, sacrifice for, treat as equal this man who is also following with us. And so my encouragement to you coming out of this is that church, you would be those who are humble individually, and you would be those who are humble as a group, and that Jesus would call us into this true greatness of humility, an entrance into his kingdom as the true definition of what is great. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you just are continually reminding us what greatness is in terms of what you call us to be, which is humble and in your kingdom. I pray that as we've seen individual uh, pride and how it causes disunity and makes our following of view about us, I pray that You would you would cause us to pursue true greatness in your eyes, which is to be sacrificially loving, and to view our, our citizenship in your, in your kingdom as what makes us great. I pray also, God, that we would protect against any type of group pride. God, that we would, we would not try to assert our greatness as a, as a collective group, but God, that we would humble ourselves knowing that, um, that those who are genuinely for you, we're all on the same team, and God, that we would um, be with each other, not against each other. Prevent our, our pride from getting in the way of that. Um, and God, prevent our desire to be great from getting in the way of causing group disunity. We need this in the church because we need to be collective in our pursuit of you and your kingdom. I pray that you'd use us in this way in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.